Broadcasting from everywhere and nowhere, the Misfit Crew at Southfleet HQ is proud to bring you the Dive Living Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Die Living Podcast, brought to you by Softlead. Today we have two special guests joining us, uh, our friend Jared, who is on episode 47, uh, which you may have heard, has spent 15 years in U.S. Army Special Operations, and we're happy to have you back here today for, I think, what will be a, a pretty in-depth and serious discussion. Uh, also joining us, John Daly, again, uh, who's on the Sociopathic Tendencies episode, uh, and is a uh, retired Marine Corps Special Operations. So appreciate you joining us as well, John. Thank it's you. It's always a pleasure to have both of you guys here. Thanks, sir. Um, you know, we have, uh, we had chatted a bit, you know, Jared, we ran into each other uh, about a month ago and we started talking about what ultimately, you know, led to the idea for this specific episode. And I, I personally am really intrigued kind of by the whole thing, um, especially with John, your recent essay being published uh, in Consequences Magazine, uh, which people can find also on your website, uh, Death Letter. I think that there is uh, a, a very interesting conversation to be had about death and killing, especially in combat. And this is something that at least you know, from my perspective is, is something that doesn't get talked about very often, especially in the open. Um, and when it is talked about, uh, when I, when I have heard it, I feel like it's, um, often been something that comes off as someone like bragging or trying to kind of, uh, you know, basically, you know, deal with, deal with an experience in a way that clearly is not maybe the, the most healthy way of doing things. Um, but with that, uh, I think that what, I, you know, what I've heard is that you hear a lot of veterans talk about, um, you know, being asked by people, uh, you know, civilians, non-veterans, like after coming back from combat, like, hey, like, did you kill someone? Um, and some people seem like they're offended by that, com by that question. A lot of people seem like they don't want to talk about it. Um, I think that it's, it, for, for people that haven't been in combat, I think that it's the idea of that experience is so, so foreign, but also so intriguing. Um, you know, I was thinking about this last night before coming to the podcast and it's like, there's so many experiences that many of us will like, will never experience. Um, but that we would love to know what that's like, even if it's not necessarily like a, a positive thing, right? Uh, and without getting too far off track, I mean, this is maybe why, you know, movies like Saw and stuff like that cap captivate us so well. Um, not that we would want to experience those things, either as the, you know, the person doing them or, or being on the receiving end. Um, but there's something that, that really intrigues us. So, you know, to kind of kick things off, I think, um, you know, John, I'm, I'm curious as to where, you know, the essay death letter, like, where did that come from, from, you know, in, in terms of the motivation to write that essay and what did it take to kind of say, this is something I'm comfortable 
sharing with the world at large? Good question. Um, I was in a, a, a writing program and I was, you know, looking for things to write. And I think I've n never been, you know, I'm not going to go out to a bar and say, hey, let me tell you about somebody I killed. But I'm also not, uh, you know, if it's somebody that you know that's like, hey, tell me about the, the experience. I think there's benefit to it, particularly talking with other people about it. I think a lot of times, you know, we feel that, uh, like you said, you know, you either you feel that you're bragging, which uh, I think most folks hopefully, you know, don't want to do. But uh, I think there's a lot of a lot to be learned by, you know, sharing experiences with other people that have that have had similar experiences or helping explain, you know, what, you know, combat's like to, to somebody that hasn't mm -hmm. seen it. So I just thought that was a, that particular mission that we went on was a, you know, a fascinating, uh, you know, mission being in old Najaf was, uh, uh, there was so much about it that, that, uh, the, the actual, you know, the shooting part was almost secondary. Sure. I think as the, the essay took shape, it obviously became kind of center, center stage, but with anything that was, you know, thinking back on it, uh, you know, you obviously look at things differently over time. So, you know, I would guarantee that I wasn't thinking about a lot of those, you know, same things, you know, when I was there, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, what, and so what specifically do you think time has given you as a way to reflect on that experience? I It like just gives you perspective distance, you know, mm -hmm. to, to be able to, to uh, look back on you know, what happened and you know reflect on it more, so um, I mean I really wager that I didn't recognize a lot of the the you know it was thinking back, looking, taking pictures, or looking at, at pictures. I really thought about the idea of of being there, um, you know, under different circumstances. You mm -hmm. know how that would have been. Uh, you know, a whole different experience, certainly. But uh, when you say under different circumstances, what what do you mean? Uh, ten years before, you know, or, or ten years after, when mm -hmm. you know, there's not uh, an empty city with you know, man eating, you know, corpse eating dogs, sure. <laughs> you know, uh, right. milling about the street. Um, you know, it would have been a you know a fascinating place to visit. I think so. It was the kind of the juxtaposition of, of that with, you know, the, the way it was then was kind of struck me, Yeah, I think, and, and led to a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah, I was struck reading it um, just by how well you painted the picture of, you know, this beautiful golden dome of the mosque and also talking about, you know, your deference to the call to prayer. Uh, you know, it's it was very clear that, to you, it didn't seem like there was any type of, uh, you know, like hatred uh, or malevolence that, you know, you were really there. Hey, like I can be, I can have an enemy, but still res like respect that enemy uh, on a certain level, not, I guess, dehumanizing those people. Uh, and I think that leads us kind of to, you know, a lot of the, the subject that we're trying to get to today is, is how do you, 
how do you prepare for and how do you deal with and during and then after, uh, you know, the act of violence, especially when it deals with killing another human being? Yeah, I think and um, I mean, I, th I think it's incredibly counterproductive to you may not you may uh, hate the you know, hate what they're, they've done, you know, be completely willing to, you know, stop their their life. But I don't think it's helpful to. Uh, you know, kind of get get jazzed up that yeah, I'm going to go and 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 kill these fuckers. I just I don't think a lot of good comes from that. I don't know. I pass that to Jared. I mean, certainly, uh, certainly in the in this soft community, that's it's a common sentiment. Um, I and maybe uh, it may be a defense mechanism that guys put on just to be able to. Because maybe that's what they had to use the first time they killed somebody, and so they use that then as going forward into their next uh, combat scenario. They're thinking, okay, as long as I'm able to put up the proper defense before I get in there, then it makes the act of killing that much easier to to cope with afterwards. Um, I, I I mean, a lot like you, I don't I don't think I've ever felt that. You know, definitely not a hatred towards anyone or, or malevolence. It's really, uh, and we discussed this, you know, before the show started, but it's really always for, at least for me personally, it's always been about the, the act of engaging in, you know, combat with another individual. And, you know, obviously individuals, you know, tend to, we tend to fight in groups, but engaging the act of, um, I get kind of in a traditional um, Bushido type way of combat where you're pitted against an opponent and the, the point is to come out on top. And then there's a lot of, in a, in a martial arts sense, there's a lot of ties to the respect that you have for your opponent, regardless of who your opponent opponent is. We don't often get to choose who our opponent is. Like that's, we, we live in a world where, you know, we're forced to go, into combat with people because of a variety of different reasons. Some people go more willingly than others, but that doesn't change the fact that those interactions are going to happen. So I feel like um, your opponent deserves a certain amount of respect no matter what, no matter what their ideology is or, or the reasons that they're there. And, uh, and I, I feel like I've always done a good job of giving that to them. And it, it helps. Maybe that's my defense mechanism, but but then again, like that's um, that's why I'm in the profession. That's what I came to do. So that's what I'm going to do. It's for no other reason. I'm not I'm not around to kill a bunch of people. I mean, in my lifetime, it, the you know the, the known people that I've killed is probably only a handful. Certainly, there may be more, but but positively, like I can only in my own mind verify a few. So it's not like uh, I'm not out there to stack bodies or do anything like that. And a lot of times, despite the hundreds and hundreds of missions that I've done, you're just, it's, it's kind of funny to, to think back on it, but it, you're not always put in a position where you can do that. So it's, a, and it is unfortunate when you do, at least when I look at it, if you're in a position to do that, it, it's often unfortunate that you're in that position to be able to do something like that. Well, most, I think, particularly in in uh, kind of kinetic raid, sort of when you're going after 
you know, a, a person, you know, obviously the better job you do, the, the more likely you are to, you know, catch them unaware and be able to right. bring them back, gather, you know, gather information, I think. And it, uh, obviously I'll get it, get it out of the way because in talking about this, we're definitely going to you know, wind up talking about uh, Grossman and particularly on combat, which I think was by far the better of the books. And he talks a lot about it there that, you know, we've, in order to enable people to engage in combat and take other lives, we quite often will, you know, refer to them by, you know, derogatory terms. You know, we called the, the Japanese nips and, and you know, the Viet Cong and uh, all these uh, things in order to dehumanize them and make them easier to, to kill. And I think there's a, you know, they talk about like stacking bodies, the kind of the, the mindset that, uh, and there's a there's a difference certainly in special operations and in you know an infantry company going to uh, you know street to street in Fallujah you know and you it requires a different level of of uh, engagement. I mean it's like the difference in and not to sound pompous, but you know between being a quarterback and being a lineman. I mean if I'm a lineman, I need to be you know jazzed up, ready to ready to go. I want my uh, you know, heart to be racing. If I'm, you know, a quarterback, I've got to be able to s step back, you know, take a look at what's going on and make more selective decisions. So I think, uh, I did, I think that dehumanizing your enemy, you know, creates the potential for people to have a greater number of, you know, issues later on, you know, when they reflect on, on, you know, what they've done possibly. Mm-hmm. But in the sense of of warfare as we know it now, now being at war for you know eight, almost eighteen years consecutively, um, it's. I mean, there's obviously a lot of different factors that that are at play in this particular war. Um, with, and I think Grossman touched on almost all. You know, he basically hit all of those in in the book on killing. But it's more or less like, you know culturally how different are they you know religiously like their mentalities as as people like you know their motives behind engaging in warfare with us like how does that affect you know our ability to go in and engage in combat with them i think now more than ever we're in a place where and it may be a part of it maybe because we're an all volunteer military and we all, and we have been for for such a long time the willingness of people, at least certain people, to continue to go back and engage in combat with them because of uh, the rhetoric on both sides uh, behind that. I don't know what your your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I think I was just having a conversation with somebody yesterday that the the percentage of folks that fought that, are, that have fought the percentage of the American population, you know, that have fought over the past eighteen years is is. Uh, minuscule compared to the amount the percentage of the population that fought in World War II. And it's, we become increasingly a, uh, more and more there, it's become a martial culture warrior class that's, you know, your father was in, so you're in and, and you're, and those that haven't served, you know, may go back generations without. So it's, it's certainly drawn a, a line and you know in the the american public between the people that are willing to to serve and the people that are are not willing to 
But I think with regards to the, you know, the enemy's motivation, you know, I think it's, it's important to keep in mind that, you know, nobody's the bad guy in their own story, you know, so, right. so they right or wrong. And we, uh, there's certainly, you know, some real dickish stuff that people have done, but, uh, you know, I think, you know, just recognizing that they think they're, they're right. And that's what motivates them to get up every morning and, and pick up a gun, uh, just like it does us. So I think looking at it more of a, not not a, a peer competition from the perspective of a you know a strategy you know a peer near peer fight but from a uh of peer to peer like you said pitting yourself against another uh, another uh person right is, and, uh, yeah and the, not to break cut in on you but it, i don't know if you're familiar with the longfellow quote about hunting humans uh, he he wrote mm-hmm. a, a poem on that, and it's mm-hmm. widely used in plaques and other memorabilia throughout the military. But, yeah, yeah. But he's pretty much the only one who ever really summed it up like that. Yeah, the yeah for those who've hunted our men long enough and liked it, there can be nothing else. Right. Thereafter, it's sniper school. That's pretty much you're almost required to get it tattooed on you. Um, <laughs> that's the that's on everything. Yeah. Do you? I mean, do you agree with that? <sighs> In a way, yeah, because there really isn't anything else like it. Like, I mean, it's not that I like, and the, I think the difference is, is and, and again, I always, only ever speak for myself. I don't feel like I represent anybody else because there's, in just any hallway that you walk into within any uh, military unit, you're, there's going to be a myriad of different motivations and reasons that people are there. Um, but personally, I, I, I don't like get my rocks off on, hunting other human beings, but there, there really is nothing else like it. So, and it would be hard for me to deny the fact that I, I continue to stay in the military had nothing to do with that because that's not true. Like why else would I put myself at risk so, for no other reason? So, yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear more about this. I mean, when you say there's nothing else like it, I mean, what are, what is it, what are the feelings that are being drummed up? when you think about that pursuit? Well, the, the thing about that, pers- about that uh, pursuit per se, it, it, it kind of, uh, you, you basically have to put patriotism and all these other uh, feelings of like protecting the homeland and all, and everything else about what, you know, why you do what you do. You have to kind of put that on the shelf for a minute and you have to say, okay, th- those are those intrinsic things that you, you know, that a lot of people use as motivation to put themselves at risk I think the majority of people I work with actually frequently talk about those are the reasons why they they're willing to go into combat. I don't have that. So I don't I don't ever really draw on that. I don't feel like I'm I'm doing my country a service by laying my life down. It's always really been about that that competition and that that engagement of being locked in mortal combat to use a a beat up term with an, another human being and coming out on top. Knowing, of course, that at some point I may not come out on top, and I, and I feel like I've set my life up to be prepared for that event occurring, and those, you know, obviously those the members of my family too, like you know, and I may not talk about this with them because that's a lot harder for a lot of people to understand who haven't felt that before. Why would you do something like that and risk everything that you've worked for in your life for that that feeling of of engaging in combat? Um, I don't know, man. I think the closest, uh, the closest thing that any, anyone can 
at least something you can draw a line to it and, and see, and, you know, cause you see it on TV all the time is, is martial arts, you know, uh, the combat sports as, as are so frequently called and and people like Joe Rogan often use terms like, Oh, you know, when, when they see a, a brutal fight, it was a war. Um, and, and I know maybe in your world, Aaron, you, you've heard people throw around the term war, like kind of off the cuff in, in a sense, but I, I, I don't use that term other than in it's a real and actual sense because it there is nothing like war either mm-hmm. despite what year all the human conflicts that we drum up every day and that we encounter so i agree i think that uh but i mean similarly i mean there's a you know some of the things and grossman talks a lot about them um and i found a lot of them to be true you know, things happen happen to you and under stressful situations, and those stressful situations certainly there's far, you know, few things uh, or maybe nothing more stressful than you know somebody shooting at you. But uh, it's you know similar, um, you know, to I'd imagine you talked about you know losing a million, a million of somebody's dollars or yeah. uh, you know a near uh, death experience or there's you know that's why people or, you know, adrenaline junkies, you mm-hmm. know, base jump or do a million things that, uh, that people do that create the same series of, uh, uh, hormones and, uh, you know, sure. the adrenaline rush that, uh, I mean, there's, I think, I mean, sometimes war gets a bad rap, you know, that, Hey, everybody's coming back all, uh, all screwed up, but there's, there's no other occasion where you can truly, you know, kind of pitch yourself against another, you know, another human putting your, 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 you and your comrade, your training on the line, your, uh, your experience, you know, everything that you bring to the table. And, you know, it's a, a truly win or lose right. uh, situation. And there's a, I mean, that can be enjoyable. Sure. I think. And then once you have it, you know, it can, uh, it can be tough to find meaning in others things yeah no I, I well i think there's uh i mean as you're saying that you know there's there's a dichotomy there that i've always found interesting in the sense that the <clears throat> i think the people that i've seen handle that type of stress uh most well have basically fallen into two categories um one would be what I would are what I would say are like more quote unquote normal people that are you know very zen if that's the uh, maybe a cliche way to put it um, but just are really like very grounded individuals right and they are at a place where they're confident um, in a very mature way uh, and then the other types of people that I've seen, you know, this goes back to like the sociopathic thing are people that really just do not have, do not feel the effects of risk. You know, like it, it's not a, it isn't a rush thing for them. You know, I think that it speaks more to what Jared was saying in terms of the martial arts, in terms of they're motivated by winning. Um, but I think the, when things are in a precarious situation or a dangerous situation, um, you know, dangerous in, on the financial side, you know, of like losing lots of money, uh, when things are going poorly, they're not reacting, uh, in a way that is emotional in any, any sense, uh, in, in that it applies to both of those categories of people, but for the people that 
or in the the second, uh, it literally is like they're just not capable of doing it. They don't care, uh, and not that they don't care in like a callous way. Um, they're just really not affected by it. And so, you know, I would I would think that people operating in like the the echelons of special operations are probably in a similar way. Uh, you know, when you're being shot at, I would assume that like the first time that happens, it's like a much more jarring experience than, you know, the 10th time it happens or the hundredth time it happens. Um, but is that what like the rush or is there, you know, really, you know, being in that dangerous situation or is it really about, you know, kind of facing off in a way that puts you into a victorious position. And if so, once victorious, you know, is that something that's like celebratory or, um, it, you know, is it something like, what are the feelings that, that come to mind, especially when that victory basically, you know, you know that that means that the other person has lost everything, right? Um, I think it's easy for us in, in any other type of situation where we're facing off against someone, even, you know, martial arts tournament, um, you guys don't typically, typically die, die. And, <laughs> die in the ring. Right. And when they do finish, him. uh, yeah, occasionally like it's, I mean, it's a really, a really jarring event. Um, and I think even the person, you know, the other combatant doesn't want to see that happen. Right. So this is taking that beyond that level. Um, and yeah, I guess, you know, how do you guys feel when, when the, you know, the bullets start flying? I, found, I, feel, I feel cheesy saying it that way. Um, is that the rush? Like, do you want to be in that situation? And, and if so, um, how does that not compromise your decision making ability to where you're putting yourself at risk unnecessarily? just to like chase, you know, this, this dragon again, to kind of continue the, the cliche way of talking about it. Well, I think, and Jared said it, I mean, there's, you know, I can only speak for me. So there's a million different motivations that lead people. Um, and I was, you know, a content, I did two deployments, an Afghanistan deployment and an Iraq deployment. And I was, I didn't feel the need to, uh, I mean, I would have, have have minded had another presented itself, but you know, it was, I knew it was time for me to retire and I would haven't regretted that decision. So I certainly didn't uh, think that I was chasing. Um, I was happy to, I haven't jumped out of an airplane since I retired. Uh, haven't uh, dove, uh, haven't done, done all of the, any of the, uh, you know, rush inducing things and, and don't feel the need to really. But uh, I think for me, it was, it's just more about experience, you know, the gathering experiences. And uh, I think I, it's just the, you know, coming back for me, the, the rush, if it was, was coming back from a successful mission and, and reflecting on that, mm -hmm. you know? So I think the, I think I would put myself a little more in the, hopefully in the Zen guy than the, uh, than the other. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think you get to choose. <laughs> That's true. And so. the fact that you're having this conversation right now kind of puts you in that category anyway. So, Probably, yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of people who would fall, you know, ten, or at least tend towards the sociopathic side would, uh, they just tend not to talk about it at all. Or mm -hmm. if they do, then it's just in that, you know, completely humanless type environment where it's like, yeah, that's what happened. 
yeah, I, I, this is what I observed. This is what happened. This is how I acted. Mm-hmm. I'd do it again, you know, like that. And that's where it ends. Right. And so they're not really willing to take it into a deeper, more intimate, whether emotional or philosophical type of discussion, because it, it doesn't it go that far. Agree. For them. I, yeah. I don't think there's introspection about yeah. it. Um, I also think that it, that like manifests itself in every other aspect of the, the lives of those people, right. In terms of just how they're interacting with other human beings in, in any situation. Um, but I mean, you know, Jared, to kind of go back, I'd love to hear your takes on the on the question as well. I mean, you know, like what are you feeling in a gunfight? Is that are you excited about it? Is it are you, you well, know, when you go to on you, deployment? You, yeah, you spoke about dichotomy, so it's interesting. Uh, I know on our last podcast we talked, you, you know, we talked about the rush of you know making a big trade or jumping out of an airplane and. You know, you know they're doing studies on testing hormones and guys that are about to jump out, and then after they get down on the ground and everything, there's a certain amount of tension that's built into every one of those situations. So, you know, everything I everything I talk about is is going to be more special operations specific because that's the only thing that I know. Mm-hmm. I, I was never a grunt in the infantry. I'd never battled through the streets of Najaf or or any or you know any other of those of those br- uh, brutal combat environments that we've seen over the last 18 years. Um, and I, I think Grossman, not to get too far off of it, off the, on a tangent, but Grossman definitely talked a lot about part of the reason that a lot of guys are traumatized so much is because once they start in one of those environments, it's a long time before they come back out of it again. Deployments are long. Engagements last multiple days or into weeks before, you know, you often see relief. And then when you do see relief, it's, uh, probably not even do a hot shower and you're, and you're eating MREs. So I think that's changed significantly, at least with regards to special operations, perhaps for the rest of the military too, um, through the uh, abnormal amount of funding that the military has gotten. The special operations has built a robust system of more or less a support in, in network there deployed. And special operations also tends to have, uh, an operational tempo that involves short burst engagement. So you go out, you, you, you go out for the night, you have an, an engagement, whether or not it's bullets flying or not, you, you're coming back. You're coming back to a, a pretty decent bed, probably a hot shower and a hot meal. And you can sustain that significant for a significant amount of time longer. Mm-hmm. But as it turns out, we still don't. We still keep deployments relatively short compared to the rest of the military because you still see what I don't know if you, you'd call it war weariness, but um, you still sort of see that after about three or four months. And it's like, okay, um, in order to, you know, be a more healthy individual for and for the sake of those organizations, um, and the, and the people who make up those organizations and their families, we're going to bring people home sooner so that they have less and less exposure to this sort of thing. So like a typical deployment for me would be, you know, a fraction of what a normal military person would, would go out on. Even though I might be going out several nights a week on operations, I've got a, a, a place of refuge I can come back to every night. Um, you know, we're, we share in the camaraderie of the success of the mission or, and reflect on, on what happened and then prepare to go out again. Um, now to bring it back onto the original question, 
it, regardless of the mission, there's a certain amount of tension that's built up into it leading into in, into the mission. And you get used to it. You, you tend to, you know, you, you have, you, if you're exercising discipline, then you're using proper systems and TTPs and tactics and everything that only makes things easier. So, you know, the mission, it's going, it's always going to develop in a certain kind of way. And so you've got everything in place you need to be successful. And, and, you know, again, taking another tangent, we talked earlier about, um, being locked in, in that mortal combat with another individual. What I'm not, what I didn't say back then was that of course we stacked the deck significantly in our favor, which I think the U S military has always tried to do, but certain, uh, operations and certain units have a benefit of even of doing that even to a greater extent exponentially, I'd say. So is it true man on man combat? Well, no, it's not. And so I'm shielded from some of the things that Grossman talked about, like, the proximity between me and the person who who I who I uh, I'm engaged in combat with, and the fact that I might not have to deal with the fallout from being in a knife fight with a guy, you know what I mean? Like that's never happened. The likelihood of that ever happening is extremely small. Although it has happened, I've heard that it's happened. So um, maybe I'm I I can talk about this in a in a way that seems like I'm unaffected by combat, but that's not necessarily true in that extent. So with that tension that is built up, you're going into a mission. Nowadays, there's not a whole lot that goes on. At least, it, you know, it doesn't make the news. There's a lot that happens, but it's not like in the in the heavy, war-heavy days of, uh, you know, first three or five years in Iraq and some of the combat that people have seen in Afghanistan. Oftentimes, people will go out and not not a lot will happen. So you build that tension up to a point where it's sustainable and manageable. And then if combat is engaged in and, you know, shots are fired or there's explosions or whatever, then it's really, that's the point at which you're jumping out of the airplane. So a lot of times, I guess you, to draw a picture for you, it would be like putting on a parachute and flying up to 10,000 feet every day. For months and only some of those times you're actually going to jump out of the aircraft sometimes you're just going to ride the plane back down to the ground but you're, you're flying up every single time and maybe the door is opening and you're looking out of the aircraft you're looking at the ground every time and you are absolutely ready to jump but nothing happens you close the door you ride the airplane back down to the ground so that's a sense in a sense what a lot what it's like but when you do and the times that sh shots are fired and you do have to jump out of the airplane you know exactly what you're doing. You know that how the wind affects your body. You know you have a plan, so you know exactly what you're going to do while you're falling to the earth. So it's a lot like that in the sense that once combat starts happening, it's how you process that information. How are you communicating with the people around you? How are you dealing with uh, events as they occur? And what are you doing to steer those events in your favor as it's going on? And there's so much of that particularly in special operations that can be planned for. I mean, in most instances, you know, the, you know, we are the, uh, we're electing or selecting the, the time and place to, to assault or to, to show up. Um, in most instances, like you said, it may end without, you know, a shot fired. You may get the people or the person or the, whatever it is that you're, you went there for in the first place. Um, and that may happen, you know, time after time after time. But eventually, 
you know, you jump out of the aircraft and, but when those do happen, you're, you can guarantee that you're, I mean, we're better trained, prepared, equipped, uh, than the people that we're going up against. Right. So we're at a, it's, it's going to be worse on them. I mean, they're, they're obviously, you know, going through the same sorts of things, but, uh, I sure. would imagine at a, at a much higher level of, of, uh, you know, uh, arousal. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that, and that's, it was, it's in, uh, Grossman's book, but it's like Yerkes, Dodson, you know, they, two, uh, researchers that talked about that to a point, you know, stress, an increase in stress leads to an increase in performance. Mm-hmm. So just, uh, you know, and depending on what your what activity you're you're performing, that's why it, it makes sense for linebackers to you know smash heads and get themselves riled up because they are increasing the level of of stress, a level of uh, you know the fight or flight response, and that's going to allow them to perform at a at a higher level to sure. a point. Once that gets you know beyond uh, a certain point, then you know bad things start to happen. Right, and that's for me. That's something that's just is always. Uh, fascinated me was the, you know, what physiologically, what are the things that are that are going on, and how come some people react very very well under under those sorts of situations, and some people may you know, react less well, mm-hmm. or you may see a uh, you know the the guy that you're going up against, hopefully you know, uh, doesn't react at all. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Well. So, but with those analogies, I think um, you know the the martial arts analogy as well. You know, well, two different things. One, if you're going into the ring to square off against a, a martial arts opponent, you are as a as a mature athlete probably don't want to fight someone that the odds are totally stacked in your favor, right? You know, you don't see like a, a heavyweight champion going to the ring and be like, I just want to. I just want to, you know, box uh, some amateur guy that doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, and, it happens because they um, know that they're not going to get killed. But, well, right. right. So, but yeah, you'll have people do that because they're like, "Well, what's the worst that can happen? I'm going to get knocked out." Sure. But you don't see that in combat. You're right. Yeah. So I think you know, there's, uh, it, is there a desire in in your mind to like face an opponent that is more difficult or you know when you guys are going on missions are you really thinking like man i just want this to be i don't want to say easy may not be the right word but you know are you are you turned on by the idea of the the risk um that it being at a higher level or is it just kind of like Getting the uh, objective of the mission accomplished is really what gives you like that positive feedback. Uh, so that we talk about that all the time. Uh, if you know, if we ever had, if we ever went to war with another developed country, you know what that would look like. Um, it, it's harder to see special operations having the same role that we do now, um, because, uh, uh, like we've talked about before, the investment that you're putting in each one of those, mm-hmm. each one of us. Um, you would be, you wouldn't be as willing to take as much risk. And certainly, you know, operations in the, in, you know, if, if you were to take a world war, let's say a world war three, where, you know, multiple developed nations are pitted against each other. Um, you, in a lot of cases, you would be forced to take some more risk 
Um, but in a lot of other cases, you, you would probably not do that because you're, you'd be a lot more limited in the scope of your operations and, and the, the freedom that you'd have to be able to conduct those missions. So, so certainly I've, I've been a part of planning for a lot of high risk missions, special operations in Iraq and Afghanistan have done a lot of high risk missions. Like look at the, uh, Osama bin Laden raid. Mm-hmm. Um, that was incredibly high risk. I, I wasn't a part of that planning process. I don't know what was going through their minds, but certainly everything was probably on the table during the planning process. So did they think that their opponent on the ground was going to be, you know, equivalent to their own war capability, uh, war abilities? I, I doubt it. Um, it's more about all the other external contingencies that they were probably um, having to having to deal with. So, so yeah, I mean, w- we do discuss that a lot. It, it's it's always tinged. I think uh, the conversation is always tinged with a little bit of. A little bit more, I don't know if fear is the right word, because I definitely take fear into combat situations all the time. Mm-hmm. I think it's a it's healthy. In order to have courage, you have to you have to have fear to begin with. So there's probably, you know, if that was ever a realistic possibility where we're forced to plan missions against another uh developed nation with with robust military capabilities, it would be uh a little bit uh, heightened fear would definitely be heightened, mm-hmm. uh, not in our ability to condu- to execute the mission properly. But you know, w- when your enemy is a lot more capable, like for instance, if they can see at night, you know that 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 changes things. And so now you've got to be able to train for that. And we do, we we, we train as often as we can to be able to handle an enemy that would be able to do that. Um. Uh, we're kind of drifting in, in that direction, but I know Grossman talked about that in on killing too. He talked about the, our ability to be able to see at night and the enemy's inability to do that, uh, making making killing easier. It, from the act of killing, it certainly does. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you have that tactical advantage. There's no doubt about that. But I don't think that it I don't think that it makes you more bloodthirsty because you've I, I just don't, I don't, I draw the connection that he's trying to make there. So yeah, well, I think what what he, he's trying to tell, and I don't necessarily agree with that either, that the, the, the further you're distanced, uh, you know, from the actual act of killing, you know, it'd be harder to kill a guy with a knife than it would with a bomb from a, an airplane. Um, and that's probably true. So, you know, if you follow that logic, then it's probably easier to kill somebody when it's dark, you know, than, you know, when you could see him in the, in daylight, perhaps, but I do. Th- I think it's it's uh, you know what what is a concern with what you're talking about is leading you know could lead to an underestimation of the opponent. Mm-hmm. You know, which uh, regardless, you know, I had a boss who used to always say, you know, a, a eight year old eight year old kid with an AK can kill you just as dead as you know the Spetsnaz, uh, you know, trooper or whatever. Um, so I think there's, I think in most cases it's, you know, just the same as you know, if I'm a, uh, you know, nationally ranked, you know, mixed martial artist, you know, I'm not going to walk into a fight with, a, you know, with, with somebody and uh, underestimate them. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's definitely a, a danger in doing that. And you can, I mean, there's things that, uh, you know, could level, you know, start to level the playing field, you know. IEDs, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. level the playing field easily. One guy, you know, sandbagged with a, you know, a, a machine gun, 
you know, down a long hallway, uh, you know, can, you know, change things up. And right. so I think, uh, that was something that we were always cognizant of. I think we went in one of the, the uh, I think it was last week or the week before there was an article in the, uh, Atlantic that got, I think, worth put on the, the Facebook page. And it was, it, I found it really interesting. The fellow was a, who wrote it was an artist and he joined the army, you know, did a, a couple of deployments and came back and was really, uh, kind of messed up from it. And the, the article was, was pretty good. But the point that, that really hit me, was uh, when he talked about, and he, I don't know what he, he did, but he ran a lot of convoys. Mm -hmm. And he talked about, like, every, as soon as they would leave the gate, you know, just being completely afraid for the duration of the mission. And I think he used the term, like, hanging over him, like the sword of Damocles, yeah. you know. And I started thinking about that. I'm like, man, you know, I could not imagine going on a mission and, you know, one, having room for that. But it just the how how much that would weigh on you if you were just in constant fear for you know four six eight hours uh, in a day. I think you know, we were fortunate to be able to compartmentalize a little bit. I mean, certainly, like uh, you said, Jared, there's certainly a level of fear. But uh, you know, at a certain point, usually for me, it would happen like in a. Uh, parachuting it was like when the door would open you know i'd get a little twinge of fear but uh you know as soon as as soon as you exited there's no time to think about that there's no uh you know your life's in your own hands right. um and if anything i think you know kind of pre-mission you know kind of going through and thinking about things uh contingencies things that could go wrong that's when you know i would uh you know kind of feel a little bit more like reality would settle um mm -hmm. But uh, you know, once you go out the gate, there's there's not time to to think of that. So for someone who was living in that state, I mean, I can certainly imagine that taking a toll, yeah, on them. Yeah, and so speaking about that even further, you know, one of the things that I think is, uh, you know, another another major difference, Jared, you made the analogy to kind of going up in the plane and and not jumping out, but continuing to do it. You know, if you're if you're a linebacker and you know you're amping yourself up before the game or you know before a play, um, that that play is going to happen, right? Like the game's going to happen. You know that you know the quarterback is going to snap the ball or call the snap, and you're going to face off against the you know the offensive line um, or the defensive line, and same thing with if you're going you know if i'm showing up to a martial arts tournament like unless unless some weird thing happens like i'm gonna fight that day right um how do you deal with amping yourself up that way and then just unwinding it dissipating that energy in a productive way that's a really good <laughs> segue into uh you know a lot of what i a lot of what makes me curious about the way that that guys deal with um, these situations, um, and, you know, oftentimes, um, in fact, probably way more often than not, it's, it, it's usually alcohol or some other s sort of downer is what most guys will turn to because it's easy and, um, and it does, it does its job, you know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that goes back millennia from the time ever alcohol was ever really a part of it. You know, like it's, we weren't, we're, that's not a, 
that's not a consequence of modern warfare by any means. So, um, now I know alcohol has other effects that, you know, we're only just beginning to see, uh, you know, as far as like abuse and, and how that really probably doesn't do a great job at all of, of helping you heal from a traumatic experience. Um, but usually that that's it. I mean, maybe more, if guys are more Zen, then it's really just about like getting sleep. And honestly, like once the adrenaline dump is over, it's like you, you, that's what, that's what you want to do. You want to sleep because, mm-hmm. you know, that's probably one of the most dangerous drugs in the world is, is that, that adrenaline. And once you turn the tap off on that, because your risk level has dropped so, so, so significantly, whether that's on the drive back the flight back or, or it's whether when you're back in your bed, um, it's hard to resist the, the overwhelming fatigue of getting that weight off of your shoulders. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's sleep comes on pretty quick. Right. So, yeah. And I think, uh, like I talked about with the, uh, linemen getting themselves psyched up, it's generally not productive for, for guys who are going out on a, you know, and a special operations mission to do that. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, and that's again my experience. But uh, you know, the a lot of the people that I most looked up to were, you know, pre-mission were guys who were, you know, sitting back reading a book or you know just listening to music, you know, and then not headbanging, you know, yeah. uh, music kind of chilling out because the adrenaline is going to come, you know, and you're going to get uh, get ramped up, and like those you know, that. Yerks Dodson talked about, you know, you don't want to get too uh, overstimulated for, for what you're, you're trying to do. And one of the things that fascinated me most early on about, uh, and it really more came from uh, this guy, Colonel Jeff Cooper, who like back in the olden days before everybody and their brother had, uh, you know, their own special operations training facility and shooting schools and things. There was gun site um, out in Arizona. And, uh, he was probably the kind of the leader on on what you know Grossman would kind of get into on just looking at uh, you know conflict and how people reacted to, to conflict and so he was the the guy who developed the the alertness color codes so it's uh, condition white I don't know if you've ever heard of these mm-hmm. is just being completely relaxed and unalert and his. Uh, you know, philosophy was, which makes sense that, you know, as a, someone in the profession of arms, there's no place for that. You know, um, but that's where 90% of the, you know, the civilian population spend their, their time, mm-hmm. you know, then uh, condition yellow is just being uh, relaxed and alert. You know, you're not, uh, you know, looking for, you know, boogeyman, you're just paying attention to what's going on around you and you can live comfortably, you know, in that, in that state. And that should be where you know most of us live. Um, beyond that, orange, you know, color code orange was a, a specified, you know, something piques your interest. So you identify something that, hey, I need to pay attention to this. And then red is, you know, it's time to get it on. Yeah. But uh, his philosophy was that you have to be able to, uh, you know, you have to be able to go from you know yellow to orange to you know, back to yellow to, to orange, you know, 10 times, 15 times a day. Um, and then, you know, once every blue moon, you're actually going to have to go to condition red and act mm-hmm. or whatever. So it's really similar to the uh, Air Force Colonel Boyd that had the OODA loop. The, you know, the, you can really tie the, 
you know, observe, orient, decide, act, observe, just simply being in, you know, condition yellow, you know, being alert, paying attention to what's going on around you so that when something does happen, you are oriented on it and move into orange. Um, and then the decision comes based on, you know, mm-hmm. your orientation on what happens and whether the decision is to to act or not. And I think there's a danger in in both uh, and I've seen, you know, seen it in comp- people that just are, are on alert. Um, you know, when the situation goes from, you know, they go from white to red in an instant, you know, they... To black. To black, yeah. <laughs> that's to where you're just you know, locked up. It's called hypervigilance. You have, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, go into brain lock because you've you've had, you've forced yourself because you weren't paying attention and then, you know, a, a threat presented itself. Um, and there's... Uh, also, the danger of the opposite of of trying to run around and you know seeing a, a boogeyman behind every every bush and mm-hmm. you know condition red all the time. You can't live like that. But I think people that are able to more smoothly transition uh, between you know bounce back and forth between um, yellow and yellow and orange, yellow and orange, and when it's time to go to red, you know get on it and then right. come back down. Yeah, it stresses the importance of emotional immaturity and intelligence and, you know, developing that as soon as you, you know, as early on in your career as you can, because uh, when it comes time to actually put that into practice, um, it's a, it's a great, it's a great tool to be able to, to be able to continue to do it again and to be able to live a normal life outside of, outside of work as well. So how, how are you guys balancing the, the physical and mental stress. Um, I mean, you know, when going back to the Longfellow quote, you know, if, if we say that, Hey, there's nothing else like this feeling out there, um, of, of hunting armed men that putting yourself in that position as being in a, a stressful state. Right. And if there's some type of positive reaction to it, Hey, there's, you know, there's no other feeling like this. Some part of me like wants that, you know, how do you balance going in and out of those different conditions and making sure that you don't stay all the time in, you know, condition red or or some other type of, I, I love the feeling of the stress and constantly chasing it and then ultimately just being burned out from it. Yeah, I think the, just the recognition that you can't and mm-hmm. just because that, you know, that quote said that there's, there's nothing like it. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. It just means that there's there's nothing else that is that is like that. It's, right. it's unique in, in in and of itself. Um, and I think the the people that have some level of longevity, you know, in this job have uh, you have got to to recognize that uh, those that don't will you know, you know it's a becomes you know symptoms. You know, and symptoms are, you know, problems at home, problems in, in uh, because they're they're chasing something that, uh, they, you know, that you can't can't get back here. You right. know, yeah, it's unfortunate that uh, that those mechanisms aren't in place from the beginning of a of a person's career in the military, or at least with their experiences in combat, because it, only over the last few years have we developed the the um, facilities and the support network for guys to be able to go to places like uh, NICO, which is the National um, Intrepid Center of Excellence up at Bethesda, Maryland. And everyone I've ever talked to has come back from that, like, if not a completely changed person, uh, significantly changed in just 
their mood and their attitude and their like emotional stability and uh, may, perhaps for even some guys their outlook on life. Um, it, it's it's unfortunate because it they typically don't aren't able to go to that unless something extremely traumatic has happened or they're nearing the end of their career and now it's mm-hmm. it's time to transition and they've got to be able to to take you know everything they've done over the last x number of years and then move it into the civilian world so um i think of those tools I, again i've never i've never been a nico uh, but i know a decent amount about it if we're surrounding ourselves with those tools as early as we can in our career then it only helps to develop you uh mentally and emotionally to be able to deal with those traumatic experiences before they occur. And then when they do occur, you're like, okay, I've got a toolkit in place to be able to, 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 to deal with this more yeah. effectively. And I think one of the, one of the biggest things for me anyway, was, uh, you know, we do, you know, everything else we, we do preactively, you know, or we, you know, we work out so that we'll be in good enough shape to execute the mission. We, uh, you know, run contingency drills for, you know, for everything so we can, can shoot good enough or I can uh, do all the components that I need to do. But we really don't spend a lot of time talking about this, about what the experience of combat is going to be like to kind of prehabilitatively, you mm-hmm. know, prepare people. And for me, I was uh, just the way it panned out. I was, uh, I'd been in the Marine Corps for 13, 14 years before I first, you know, saw any combat. And it was, uh, December, 2001, you know, in Afghanistan. And we had, I I was fortunate in that, you know, I had had a a class where they talked about, it was just called a combat mindset class. And they talked about the color codes and Jeff Cooper. And, um, I'm not even sure if at the, at the time, that Grossman's uh, first book had come out. So I don't know if it was, but it was a lot of the same stuff. You know, here's the things that are going to, going to happen to you. Here's the, uh, you know, a lot of it based on law enforcement and FBI statistics. And really what kind of sold me on it was, you know, this gunfight we got into outside of Kandahar, you know, it was December 7th, I think of 2001. And, you know, so many of the things that I had, uh, been told you know i experienced mm-hmm. so we like talking about jumping when you go to you know before you're allowed to go to free fall school you go to the it's called the haps chamber the high altitude pressure simulator and they take you up to whatever 35 or forty thousand feet without oxygen and you don't necessarily recognize uh, the fact that you're you're getting goofy you know mm-hmm. they uh, you're, you're trying to do math you know two plus three and you and you can't do it you uh and then at a certain point you put oxygen your oxygen mask back on and uh like for me you know color returned you know i wasn't aware that color you know i couldn't see colors mm-hmm. but uh you know color came back and instantly your brain you know kind of clears up but they uh and then years later i would have a little issue with a parachute or issue with my oxygen um you know at uh, 30,000 foot when I jumped out and I immediately recognized those things so and that's what I likened it to you know when uh you know the first bullets started flying was that uh you know for me time slowed down like amazingly mm-hmm. like it felt like uh, like I was the uh 
the one X-Man that could move real fast, you know, and everything was going really, really slow. And I was like, you know, which could have freaked me out. But I was like, you know what? I, I've heard about this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and Grossman talks about uh, distracting thoughts. You know, I was, I was having this little conversation with myself about something had nothing to do with the the dudes who were, you know, trying to get their weapons up to shoot at me. Um you know, when we first shots were fired, you know, I didn't hear them. I didn't have ear protection in and didn't, um, which freaked me out a little bit that, uh, you know, it wasn't nearly as loud as it normally is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, tunnel, kind of get a tunnel vision on the, the you know, the guys with the guns. So all of these things were, were going on. And this there was kind of a running dialogue in my head while this was happening. I was like, man, you know, all of these things that I was told in this, this class, in fact, uh, you know, happened, mm-hmm. which I thought was really, really neat. And the next day after kind of everything was over, I took all of my guys uh, individually and kind of sat, sat with them and was like, hey, man, what did you notice? You know, what did you experience? Did you experience, you know, slow motion time or, or fast motion time or, uh, you know, what's called you know, perceptual narrowing or, you know, all of these things. And most, I mean, almost predictably, I mean, I think the things that, uh, you know, everybody experienced not everybody didn't experience the same thing, and they certainly mm-hmm. didn't experience the same thing the same way. But everybody recalled you know the situation a little bit differently, and that was really what you know. I think the first uh, thing that got me interested in this. So you know, when I came back. I really got into you know, whatever literature was uh, you know Grossman. I said was the big one, but in the back of Grossman's books, you know, all his you know he doesn't. Uh, for the most part, he's not, it's not original thought. You know, he's taken studies and things like that that have mm-hmm. been done. So there's, uh, you know, a lot of, and again, most of it's on uh, law enforcement. But, you know, so I started, you know, purchasing all the books that he has. You know, there's Alex Artwall, uh, the Deadly Force Encounters, that talks about a lot of this. Um, it's different books on how different cultures have, have dealt with, uh, one, the warrior kind of ethos and how that you know, has impacted their ability to, you know, do what they need to do in war. So I just found it endlessly fascinating. And then, you know, is recognized, you know, over time that, you know, I don't, you know, didn't react the same way each and every time. I didn't experience mm-hmm. the same things each and every time. But I certainly think that over time, there can be a desire to feel that feeling. Uh, I, I never found that to be overwhelming, but, uh, Things certainly become easier over time. So the more you, the more you you do them, the uh, the more you do them under conditions of stress, and it's one of the things that's difficult to replicate in training. You know, we can. There's a lot of things that you can uh, you can set up a requirement to, you know, transition from a rifle to a pistol or do that with only using one arm. But you know, you, you really it's tough to replicate the the level of stress that's induced by. You know the you know, adrenaline, epinephrine, and all the the chemicals that uh, are released when you know True. something like that happens. Does that fade over time at all? Um, you know, this is maybe not like a a great analogy, um, but I think about uh, like hunting for in my experiences, and you know the first the first hunt that I ever did was you know classic like deer tree stand. And sitting there for, you know, I don't even know how long hours, you know, being very like calm and collected. And then all of a sudden, you know, deer comes out and it's like never shot an animal before. 
Um, all, you know, my heart rate's like going through the roof, same thing, like totally not paying attention to what's going on, you know, basically just like get the, get the gun up, kind of rushing the shot, like, et cetera. Um, you know, fast forward to the other end of the kind of, you know, maturity or where I'm at on the maturity scale now and take a situation that's, you know, maybe stalking an animal instead of being in the tree stand where your heart rate isn't as low. So like you're already kind of going a little bit more. Um, but notice like when the engagement happens, um, you know, when you finally come across the, the animal, you know, really just not having that same heightened level of like, oh shit, here it's happening, it's happening, you know, to, to kind of just saying like, all right, you know, like I've seen this happen before, is this a shot that I'm going to take? I'm going to place my shot. I'm going to like wait for, you know, being a, a much more calm uh, thought process rather than like, you know, fuck it's on. Um, is it, you know, is there that same type of evolution in combat? Yeah, I would. Well, I think if the deer had a, had a rifle too, that it <laughs> might be, <laughs> be a lot different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think it's, I mean, I, I, you know, and I don't I certainly haven't been in enough gun fights to, to say with any sort of, uh, uh, certainty and I like I said I think every situation is different um, but I do think over time you become more you know accustomed uh, certainly like in that essay that I wrote you know that was the you know the first time that I had shot somebody you know looking at them through a scope mm -hmm. and for me that was a completely different experience than you know you know shots going both ways how so there's less time to think, um, you know, when somebody else is, you know, kind of expressed the, the intent and desire mm -hmm. to kill you. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't a, a matter of, of questioning, you know, whether I was uh, going to or not, but it's just a, it's a different, uh, I think it's probably more similar to, you know, looking through a, a scope at a deer, you mm -hmm. know, that uh, you don't have to, um, take the shot you're i mean to a certain degree you're in a like a little voyeuristic um uh you know, situation and it i right. mean part of it i think was just being incredibly shocked that you know he had popped up mm -hmm. there um uh you know part of it was you know in this that particular case was just the recognition that he was he was young and i think that uh impacted me a little bit, mm -hmm. um, but that was, I think I've, you know, my heart was, was pounding, uh, then mm -hmm. that was just a different experience. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, do you think, so I guess Grossman's, uh, kind of stance on it was operant conditioning, right? So, um, do you think that's for you, that's what it was or, or, or are we, I'd like to think that it's more like we're understanding once we understand the physiological responses that are going to happen and we adapt our training to be able to, to, to train those specifically for those specific reasons only to gain a, a better awareness and control of our own responses as these actions are occurring. And then, uh, you know, allowing that to affect our reactions. Yeah, I definitely think, and that was, you know, that, time in, in uh, Afghanistan was like a big you know, aha moment for me that, uh, you know, as it pertains to your training, you know, if you know that, 
um, you may have difficulty hearing, then it probably makes sense to, you know, if I tell somebody something to, to look at them and make sure that or to include hand arm signals. Um, if, you know, I know that I can get tunnel vision, you know, I really need to make sure that I'm keeping my head on a swivel and looking around. You know, if I know that, you know, over time, um, fine motor skills are going to become lessened, you know, then it makes sense to, to, you know, make sure that I'm, you know, being very confident if I'm seating a magazine that I'm, I'm really doing, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not grabbing magazines, uh, you know, with, with two fingers because I may not have the, you know, the dexterity to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it really, I think it forces you to recognizing that, that these things are going to be limiting factors to take a look at all your SOPs, the way your equipment's set up and, um, and make better choices about how you're, mm. you're going to react based on worst case scenario. And then certainly in, you know, if recognition that behind the, you know, when that, although it's a little bit different, I think you're not in a, a necessarily fight or flight sort of situation when you're behind a, a sniper rifle and there's nobody else shooting at you. But, uh, you know, the, there's certainly impacts. And I think that those impacts were different in a lot of ways than, than being in a, you know, a close up uh, mm-hmm. engagement. Jared, what are your experiences? Are they similar? Uh, I'm sitting here listening to John and I'm, I've been thinking about it. Um, so I guess the first time, the first time I ever shot somebody, it was, you know, it was at night and, uh, I was relatively new to the whole combat thing. Um, and it was, uh, you know, to go back to like first impressions and first feelings of of everything that happened. I remember, um, once I, you know, once I had made the decision to do it, it was kind of a unique situation because it was, it was just off of where most of the action was happening. So I, I wasn't like directly engaged in what, in the real firefight that was going on, but you know, I was in proximity with people who were actively engaged. So, um, you know, kind of like pulling security out of, out of a, a different to front to a different viewpoint. And then I, you know, I identified someone who was a potential threat and I, and I, I took the time to associate that person and their actions with what was going on around them and, and how they played into the whole scenario. And once I determined that, that they were indeed a threat and I chose to engage it, the, the initial feeling was, um, like, holy shit, I can't believe I actually just shot at a person. That was, that was the initial thought. Like I had plenty of time to think about what it was going to feel like. And then it happened and I'm like, okay, I've definitely never done that before. And, and my target was probably, you know, I say my target more dehumanizing. This person was probably 50 yards, 50 meters away, Mm -hmm. 40 to 50 meters away. Uh, even at night with the technology we have, not exactly like, um, the easiest shot in the world. And, And they were moving, it was a moving target too. So um, so that, after that initial feeling, um, I kind of like directed my attention back to where the action was going on because that was the most pressing thing happening. And then w- with that still weighing on my mind, um, I, I mean, I don't have to explain to John, but communication in any one of these situations, except for a situation where you, maybe you've been ambushed and you just want to get out of the situation, which I've been in that before too. But in the, in the case where you're, let's say you're on offense and you've 
put the plan into place and now you're conducting the mission, which we were in that case, the, the importance of communication can't be understated. So, um, it, it kind of weighed on me so heavily over the next hour, I'll say till, till everything was kind of like finishing up and we were doing what we were there to do. I, I didn't, I didn't tell a soul and it was just like, I was still thinking about like, wow, that I, you know, that was so shocking that I'd actually done what I had been training years to do. Mm-hmm. Cause I think I'd been in the military probably six or seven years at that point. So, um, so after that had been over, there was, there's work to do. So it's, there's almost always work to do. So it's easy to, to take your mind off of that. And eventually someone else identified the fact that there was now a dead person over in this particular area. And then the, the call came over the radio. Hey, did anyone shoot somebody over in this particular area? And then it dawned on me that, that it was me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I said something. And then, so we, me and a couple other people moved over to where, um, the body was. And I remember, you know, looking at the body and thinking like, okay, that was a, you know, that was a person. They were obviously dead. Um, I'd seen dead bodies tons up to that point. I just never had been the one to shoot them. And then my very first thought after walking up to the person was, I can't believe how accurate I was like that, that more than almost more than anything really like consumed my thoughts like because you don't have any way of really validating that even through all the training that you go through how fast you are you can always measure you can always measure how accurate you are on on targets on the range until you actually employ that it's difficult to to really see to kind of validate everything that you've been through so Mm -hmm. um yeah my first shot went right through the forehead and i i couldn't believe it like that's I was, so, is that where you had been aiming? Yeah, that's where I was aiming. Yeah, because uh, the only shot I had at the time was a headshot, and mm-hmm. uh, um, I, I was just shocked that 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 I had been that I could do what I thought I could do, and then after that, that kind of the feeling after that was like, um, holy shit! Like I I I can I can be really good at this because I didn't know up to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, all I have is my peers to compare myself to on in, in training. And, uh, and I think that's when it really first kicked off for me. Like, okay, this is something that I can, I can do and be successful at. Like, I didn't really feel remorse because we were in a situation where our lives were at risk too. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 so it was easy for me to justify, um, in that moment, like, you know, I, we came here for a reason. We don't ever, we don't go out unless we have a reason to go out. Uh, you know, we're, we're never going to accept any risk that we don't feel like we have that is unnecessary. Um, other than to accept what we have to do to get the, the mission done. And, uh, yeah, it was really like a, it was, it was validating in a lot of ways that, that I could, I could actually put into practice what I, what I trained to do and be, and be good at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I saw that, you know, I, I, there haven't been like so many engagements that I've lost count. Um, but I will say one other thing I was thinking about when John was talking, uh, to draw back to that one-on-one, you know, and get, you know, locked in, in mortal combat with, with one other person, every other engagement I've had with, with other people in firefights, if I'm able to, if I have the time to be able to assess 
they're a threat to me. Like it's not a reactionary thing, which is usually because we're so much better trained and well-equipped and faster. Mm-hmm. Um, we usually have, if, if only a split second, we have some time to be able to process what's happening and who, who this person is. Um, there's, for me, there's always been like a slight hesitation where, where I, I, I've, I'm long past the time, maybe not long past, but I'm past the time where I could have engaged this person and I could have shot this person and engaged in that combat with them. I've always taken it a little bit further to be able to fully and completely assess and maybe even to my own detriment. And it hasn't come back to, hasn't come back to bite me in the ass yet, but I've always, I take, so take for instance, uh, there's been numerous times where I've engaged people who have already been shot. Now they are still a threat to me at that time, but, but there's always been for me that hesitation where it's like, how much of a threat is this person? Like, what, what am I getting out of completing this or involving myself in this, in this situation? And then I, I'm able to make the decision then. And I've, I've often hesitated because I know that the person is no longer a threat, even though they're still alive. Mm-hmm. I'm just like that. I, I'm getting nothing out of that. That's not, that's not what I came here to do. So in a sense, to bring it back to kind of the over overarching topic like what why do i do what i do what 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 feeling do i get out of that yeah i i want to be engaged with someone who is capable of engaging back with me Mm -hmm. and that's that's what i'm after it's not it's not anything more than that i think you know i think it's probably also a component of you don't want to shoot somebody that doesn't need shot right you know i i know in that that night in afghanistan i felt the same thing although i felt that i had ample time because we had stopped this vehicle um on the road coming out of out of kandahar and they just guys sitting in the bed of a truck and uh they were wrapped in blankets because it was december it was cold as hell but uh you could tell they had weapons. The guy in the center, though, had his had his AK out, and so he obviously presented the most kind of immediate threat. But uh, I yelled at him, you know, told him to put their weapons down, because um, I really I think the biggest fear that I had was more so for the my Marines was that we were gonna you know shoot you know shoot into the vehicle and there was going to be a, a kid in there or there was going to be you know I didn't want to put them in a position where they were. Uh, doing something that they were going to regret. I mean, we'd spent, you know, ample time on, you know, target discrimination, make sure we're shooting people that, uh, but there was also then, like I said, December 7th, there was a bit of, uh, of, uh, you know, we want some fucking payback. Um, Mm -hmm. And we, you know, recognized at that point that we were going to, we were going to get some. Um, But uh, I've always been, you know, I would certainly not want myself to, you know, shoot somebody that, that need to be shot. Mm-hmm. I, I no issue with shooting somebody that does or somebody that, like I said, has the capability and intent to shoot at me. But uh, I think more so just as a leader, you know, I, was, uh, I would have a hard time living with, you know, the, the fact that one of my guys had a hard time living with something that they had done, right. you know, that uh, either that they shouldn't have done or, or something that I'd, you know, a position I'd put them into. Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately everybody has to, you know, make the their own decision, but that's uh, always been. If, if something uh, was you know tingling in the back of my head that night was that you know I just really really hope that there's not uh, somebody in this you know 
in this car that, you know, a kid or a, a woman that was a non-combatant that just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Sure. We, we, there's a, a saying that we have at my work that I hear all the time, and it's, it's it, it often comes after someone's, like, made a mistake on the range and, you know, because we, we're, we're always pushing our limits in, in training to be able to avoid those situations in, in combat. But uh, we get, and it, the saying is we get paid for the shots that we don't take. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think, I think that at some point when you can draw that line and say like, okay, you are a, a warrior now, you're a professional fighter. Um, that's not the end of it. Like you don't, you can't stake your claim just on that. Now you have to take it to the next level and be able to put yourself in those situations and make those judgments, those snatch judge, snap judgments, um, for, for the, all the right reasons. Like, you know, and not not you know be able to assess everything completely right. and entirely as fast as possible. You well, know? and I think that's a lot of what I was talking about or trying to, I guess, convey before yeah. was you know getting to a place where you're able to take the time to really clearly think through those situations. Uh, hopefully, not at the you know the, the detriment of your own personal safety. Um, you know, but like, what does it take to? to, in my opinion, mature into a place where you're able to do that cool. instead of just reacting. <laughs> I don't so. know, because I think a lot of guys ha- w- almost never mature into that. Yeah. And and those are the guys who would tend towards the more nihilistic socio sociopathy. Can type. you even train for it? Is it something that you can prepare for? I mean, I know, you know, John, you mentioned you're like, hey, this all this stuff's happening to me. And in the moment, you know, hey, I recognize like this is what people talked about. Um, but even with that, it's still happening to you physiologically, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so is there even a way that you're able to get yourself uh, trained to a to a level where you can go into, you know, combat or any type of situation like that and and not have that kind of initial like heart heart pounding, uh, you know, tunnel vision, loss of fine motor skills, et cetera. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I doubt it. I mean, you know, over time, you know, I'm sure, you know, people could suppress that somewhat or, um, so what Grossman talked about. And one of the things that people I think take issue with is he, uh, kind of drew a, a line in the sand that said that a hey, beginning at, uh, um, 115, like 115 to 145 beats per minute is the optimum zone, performance zone. Mm-hmm. You know, once you, you know, prior to that, below 115, you're you're not maximizing the, you know, the capabilities of the, the adrenaline. And above that, then you start uh, really losing the, the cognitive abilities and, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and things. And I don't, I mean, I think those are numbers that he, he kind of pulled out of air. So I think they're certainly different for, right. you know, different people in different situations. Um, whether the, you know, if you've just climbed over a wall and your, you know, your heart rate is up, that's not remotely the same thing as, as having a, you know, the pituitary gland glands releasing sure. um, the whatever chemicals and things that jack up your heart rate, you mm-hmm. know, um, but uh I, I I am a believer, and it hasn't been proven necessarily that uh, you know the education beforehand, just the recognition that these things are are happening, mm-hmm. is uh, you know helps kind of mitigate yeah. some of the 
the responses being a surprise and not really knowing. Yeah, and that's that. Uh, Jeff Cooper, um, the gun site guy, talked about that. He's that uh, it's you know essential for the guy that you know it's really just being in condition yellow and recognizing that that uh, you know likely you know I need to be prepared for something to happen. If you're prepared, you're you know you're already in uh, you know a state of mind that's you know, anticipatory, right. you know, so you're active rather than reactive. And that's where I think a lot of bad things happen is, is, uh, in that state. I also think, and I think, you know, Grossman may have talked a little bit about it, but there's, uh, I think there's a, you know, a reason that people have less, well, there's probably a lot of reasons why, you know, people in special operations hopefully have less, you know, issues dealing with things, but, uh, you know, having, you know, trust in the training that you're given, the equipment, you know, and when you're the training equipment that you have is world class, you know, mm-hmm. when the guys on your left and right are, are world class and you know that, um, you know, they've they've got, you know, your back covered. Um, and when you believe in the, you know, the mission, you know, you believe in your leadership, if, you know, you have all these things, um, then I think you're you're putting yourself in a much better position to, to react well and, you know, not regret things later on, you know, when you don't know, and I've, you know, I've been in the, in the infantry, when you're a, a guy in a squad, you know, you, you probably don't even know what the hell the mission is. You know, you <laughs> may barely know who, you know, who assigned the mission. Um, you just know, Hey, I'm going over here. So there's just a lot more ambiguity. Um, a lot more concern with, um, you know, is what I'm doing, you know, right, or am I allowed to shoot this guy, or am I not? And not necessarily whether am I allowed to, but you know, can I? But should I? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, what are the repercussions going to be? Um, so I, I think there's, you know, the the, and not to sound, you know, the the more uh, you know, higher you climb up the ladder, I guess the mm-hmm. the more things you have kind of stacked in your favor. True, uh, I believe. So I don't know if you. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh... Um, I think we mentioned it before, Aaron, in our last uh, session, you know, trust is built on character first, then competence, and then finally performance. So um, if you've get the character of the people around you are, is such that it's, you know, they're willing to support you in those stressful environments, um, you're not only are you willing to take more risk, but you're, but you're um, less likely to take actions that would that would then disappoint them in some way so right so and then you know after traumatic situations happen you know part of the a big part of that of the way that individuals deal with it is is in the group component which you know as grossman mentioned several times um you know how are you how is it being discussed what's the what's the uh what's the environment the discussion is happening if there is a discussion happening what is what's the the atmosphere, you know, is it, mm-hmm. was it, was it traumatic? Did some, you know, did someone on your side get killed? Because I know that that obviously affects, um, how those discussions happen too. But, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of that. Yeah. I think, um, you know, one of the things that <clears throat> we had chatted about before as well, when you guys are talking about the different condition levels, uh, reminds me of is, you know, this idea of like the sheepdog mentality or the, you know, the 2%. 
Um, now, is that something that you guys agree with? Is that the way that we need to like frame how we look at the world, whether in combat or just in daily life? I think I think that works. It may work really well for for cops, but mm-hmm. um, I don't really see the relevance in, or at least not as much to any to to the military, um, and even on a like not a, to dip into politics, but on the national scale, I don't really see how that how that can apply. Sheep, you know, there's one thing about the sheep men sheep dog mentality is is, um, you know, how big is your flock? You know that that type of thing. Like you're you're, and 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 why are we demonizing wolves? You know, like are, are we not able to look at at the at the wolves and understand what's going on on that side of the fence mm-hmm. per se? Like that that meant that persona doesn't resonate with me personally. I, I think it does with some people in the military, um, and you can kind of tell who they are because they're. They're not. They may not be vocal about it, but but they tend to put other things, certain priorities ahead of others, like you know, um, patriotism or their family or all these other things about where they're 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 extremely proud of what they do for a lot of a lot of different reasons. I'm not saying that's bad in any way. It's just not mm-hmm. how I. It's not. That's not how I view it. So, John. Yeah, and I agree with uh, that. I think there's a big concern you know within the, the states of the you know, military you know militarization of the of the police mm-hmm. you know uh, and, and kind of trying to you know take on a different persona so i think that makes a lot of sense for them i mean their job is to protect and serve our, our job is to locate close with and destroy the enemy mm-hmm. um and that's the the Marine corps rifle squad mission you know right. to uh so i don't i don't think it applies i think it uh I mean, if we were to to look at it, there being you know sheep, uh, sheepdog, and wolves, I, I, you know, I think we should look at ourselves as as the wolves in the in the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, like I mentioned with that uh, Atlantic article, I mean, I, I think that 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 uh, you know author that wrote that article kind of saw himself in that that regard, saw himself really as a sheep, you know, going out, uh, you know, sitting in the back of a Humvee on, you know, or an MRAP mission after mission after mission, just waiting for, you know, a wolf to come along. Yeah. And that's I don't something think you that's, mentioned in your essay as well. Um, you know, that if correct me if I'm wrong, um, but that that being like the most, uh, most biggest time of nervousness for you in any mission was, you know, kind of being in the back of a vehicle where you don't have, you don't know what, what's going on. You don't have control over the outcome of anything. Yeah. So especially in, uh, in that was in, a, a Bradley, you know, mm-hmm. so I couldn't see anything. Can't, uh, but you know, for me, you know, once my life gets into my own hands or the hands of my, me and my team, mm-hmm. then I'm, I'm much more comfortable. Yeah. You know, I would, like I said, I'd much rather jump out of an airplane than, than ride in the airplane. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, if it uh, something happens, that's totally on the pilot, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, the idea of that of that guy just feeling like he's constantly a, a, has a target on his head. Yeah. You know, I certainly wouldn't want to you know, live like that. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. No, for sure. Um, yeah, I think... When I think about the, you know, the whole sheepdog thing, and I don't know if this is what Grossman was really originally talking about, but maybe what it's become, uh, to me it seems much more about the idea of um, trying to, you know, like 
prove manhood or like it justifies something uh, maybe for people that haven't served in the military, giving them like a way to kind of say, you know, like, hey, like, you know what, like I'm doing something too, right? Like I'm, I'm out there may not be, you know, protecting our soil on foreign grounds, but you know, I'm, I'm chipping in by doing mm-hmm. it here. Um, I mean, the fact is like most of the people I, I like, man, I probably wouldn't want that guy protecting me in like a, a movie theater if some yeah. guy walked in with a gun, you know, like, uh, <clears throat> but I think there's an idea of this bravado of, you know what, like I can control my own destiny and I can be enough of like a man to protect those around me. Uh, but I, I think it's really a false narrative. Yeah, I think, well, within the, I mean, without, you know, the non-military folks that, uh, you know, go and spend all their money on the, on the, on that shit. Yeah, I agree. I think within the military, it's become a, a counterproductive force mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, everybody wants to be a, you know, a sheepdog or a Spartan or a pirate or a, you know, whatever, <laughs> pick your, the, uh, I mean, there's, you know, the, being a, a Marine or a soldier or, a, you know, a sailor or, you know, or an airman, you know, you know, really should certainly be enough. Right. And I think, you know, once we try to, um, and, you know, within, within those, you know, being a special operations guy, special forces guy or a SEAL or a Raider, um, certainly something to, to, uh, attain, but trying to continue. You know, further, you know, segregate themselves to the point where you know it's all about the the team, or you know, I think that's a negative uh, thing that's come out of you know eighteen years of of conflict. Mm-hmm. You know, the most important, uh, you know, whether you know, and I I said it in that article. I I consider myself patriotic. My decision to join the military, I don't think was. You know, totally altruistic or totally patriotic. I mean, I wanted to do something different. I wanted to get out of where I was from, and then I found I liked it and was was pretty good at it. But uh, you know, the the recognition should still come as you know we're Americans performing a a function, you know, in support of our you know national policy, right? And not necessarily you know, I'm. You know, I'm uh, Punisher three four uh, over here uh, to you know meet out uh, justice or whatever. Yeah. Well. yeah. If you, if, I mean, if you, if you guys have listened to any of like uh, you know Jordan Peterson's philosophy, uh, not necessarily philosophy on it, but his uh, whole stance on the whole thing, and it's like, you know, we develop these like memes and these narratives. Uh, everyone does all the time to be able to position themselves and in. in in our society, in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know if it's like a justification thing to be able to, you know, justify what it is that you're doing, you know, like, Hey, if you have a purpose, then how do you explain that purpose to other people? Um, so I think the sheepdog thing is like, it's kind of like a meme of, uh, that, that people use to kind of explain it to, to people that don't really understand why you would, do something like be a police officer in, uh, you know, NASA, like in Chicago or LA or anywhere else for that reason. Mm-hmm. And, and there's goods and bads to both sides of it. Like people, some people use it as justification for militarization of the police and other people are, no, I, you know, I just use it because I feel like I'm, I'm willing to, to step out of the crowd and protect others. So, um, I don't know if memes really, resonate that much in the military in the sense of like meme, you know, uh, 
different personas and narratives and stuff like that. But I, I think they do. I think they're huge. I mean, you know, you, you just, well, uh, you, you talk about, you know, the Spartan thing. Yeah. Like, yeah, each, right. So every unit's got their insignia and their slogan and all that stuff. Um, part of building up that camaraderie, but I don't know how, ma- how many people take, actually take that to heart. I don't, I don't know. I think it's, it's become, uh, you know, it's a discussion I was in just uh, yesterday at a, 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 you know, conversation I was, I was in when that, uh, you know, over the, the years of, of war and, you know, we have nothing really to compare it to because, right. you know, it's, there's no other time in our history we've been at war, you know, half this long really. But, uh, the, focus has, you know, shifted further, further, further down into the, you know, the smaller unit. I think the level of importance being placed in the, the, in the individual small unit. And I think sometimes to the detriment of, of the mission, you know, like you talked about purpose, you know, our purpose, I think needs to be at the, you know, the organizational level. Um, and when I just think there exists the possibility of, uh, you know, not necessarily impropriety, but, you know, the the greater likelihood of, you know, when smaller units become more insulated, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. But don't you think that's a consequence of the fact that really all of these wars are, are basically, they're undeclared, you know, it, it, this is irregular by every, every uh, definition of the word. Like, you know, the, in a lot of ways, the, the country is not in on any of this at all either. So a lot of people don't feel like we have the weight of the country or, or of, of society behind us. Yeah. Even most of the military isn't. Right. There was a, a saying, at, I don't know when it was it was coined, but somebody posted it recently that um, somebody said, you know, the America's at war. And they're like, no, uh, you know, the, the military's at war. America's at the mall. Right. And I mean, now we're kind of at the point where the, you know, the military's at the mall. It's, you know, special <laughs> operations is at, is at war. <laughs> so it's certainly been, you know, I mean, a lot has been asked of, you know, of very few people, um, you know, repeatedly, you know, over and over. And there's certainly, uh, you know, plenty of other folks outside of special operations that are keeping busy and doing things too. So I don't want to, you know, denigrate anybody, but, uh, but the, you know, the shoulders that have carried the greatest you know, share of the load has been the, you know, special operators across the services. And, you know, you have to expect that there's, there's going to be, you know, repercussions over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, part of that I think is, is, you know, there's that kind of ins, uh, insulated, uh, or insular, you know, uh, kind of mentality, mentality, putting the, the team above all else. Sure. And it's just something that, that you know, I've seen in things that have, have happened recently of, uh, you know, that's probably a, a point where it becomes a point of friction when mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. team is more important than the, you know, than the larger unit or than the, uh, the mission. Right. And it really comes down to like you, you mentioned purpose, you know, what's your purpose? Um, individually and then as a, you know, an organization. Yeah. I don't think that, uh, I don't think that's gonna, I don't think that's gonna go away, uh, anytime soon. Um, and maybe because of the, the way that the, as a country, how America conducts its wars now, but, um, years ago, Stephen Pressfield wrote a book, um, called The Profession and it Mm kind of typifies that. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that book, but, Mm -mm. um, more or less like it paints a picture so many years into the future uh, where basically all modern warfare is fought by, by contractors. So 
um, you know, to go to hit back on like the whole meme thing. And then the, the, the team and the individual kind of becoming, taking precedent over everything else. I, I that kind of flows with the natural direction of where we are as, as human beings and society and, and, you know, at least in the West with the glorification of the individual, maybe I'm, I'm stepping way beyond my bounds here, but, um, I, I feel like the natural warriors in, in the world w- are, they're going to find combat no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, they just so happens right now, they mostly reside in special operations units ag- across the world. But if we were to take all that away and, um, I think it would, it, something would, would come up to be able to satisfy that in a sense. Um, I mean, I can't be the only one out there that's, that's, you know, driven by the same motives or the same, has the same passions. So right. as unhealthy or, or whatever they, they may be. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting though that not, not a lot of people are, are talking about it. Um, better for, for better, for worse, Grossman brought up a lot of really good points and the, the taboo that surrounds it is, um, it's something we, we have to be able to get by. I don't feel like the conversation is over with the with the amount of literature that's that's been published on it. John, I know you've done a great job of you know, with Death Letter and everything and you putting that out there, I think that's a a really good step in the right direction. Um, but if you look at, you know, to to tie it into current events, the fall you know, a fallout or the repercussions from Duncan Hunter saying what he said in his press release and defending the Navy SEAL who's on trial mm-hmm. for murder. Um, yeah, the reaction for, I, I don't necessarily disagree with what he said because he, the situation that he was in warfare is just something that people don't like to talk about. And, uh, and that's the way that he justified his circumstances and the actions that he took. And, uh, who's to say whether or not he's right or wrong, you know, like that, that is the nature of warfare, you know, the, all the, the goods and the bads that come with it. So, well, um, <clears throat> on that note, you know, one of the things that, well, originally I think what kind of kicked off the whole idea for this session that we're having right now is if your your idea for creating kind of a, a story core, as you called it, yeah. um, you know, for veterans specifically to talk about the experiences of killing. So, you know, I'm curious if you can tell me a little bit more about kind of like what you're thinking about that project and... You know, why specifically you think that that's so important to create and have people share? Well, m- mostly because it is so taboo, I think is why I'm, I'm drawn to it. Um, I don't know if all the, all the lines that Grossman tried to draw between killing and sex are, are relevant, but, um, I feel like as a, as a topic of conversation, sex in, at least in the West is, you know, uh, it's a lot more freely talked about and discussed. And of course people will always want their privacy respected, but um, we're nowhere even close to that when it comes, when it comes to killing that it's because um, in a, in a much deeper way, it, 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 for a lot of people it embodies like, or at least it comes close to uh, evil mm-hmm. in the Judeo Christian sense. Um, and, and even beyond that, in just the human human nature sense. So, I, so there is a lot of taboo around that. Um, and so I, I really just want to get it, help get it out in the open. I'm, I'm not the only one who's making any efforts by any means. I'm really just dipping my toes in the water right now, but, but I do, um, 
I've got a couple things going, uh, or at least they're they're moving from the nascent stages into into actual actual products now or actual entities. Um, one of which uh, I had a I had a name for a potential podcast that was going to start, and then I realized that that podcast name's already been taken. So, um, but within the next like six months to a year, I'll, I'll um, uh, myself and and my best friend uh, Travis will likely be setting up a website um, and a podcast to be able to bring veterans in specifically. Or and for now, it'll just be kind of veterans of like post nine eleven. Mm-hmm. And from there, you know, seeing how, how, where we can branch out from there, because certainly the traumatic experiences that police officers and and uh, veterans from other wars went through are no, no less important and need mm-hmm. to be discussed. Um, but for now, it's, you know, uh, global war on terror, post 9-11 type veterans, um, because that's who I that's who I know. That's who I work with every day. And I'm familiar with their stories. So. Uh, that makes fact checking a little bit easier, but more or less we want to create an environment where veterans can come and talk about their experiences in a lot of the same way that we're doing now, mm-hmm. um, in a, in a place where they're not going to be judged for, yeah. for what they did. Um, and I realize that because it's still so taboo, it may take a long time for us to be able to pass out of the realm of anonymity. Um, but discretion is always my top priority. So I'm, 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 I'm working out a way I'm learning how to go about doing this and protecting the privacy of every individual that chooses to participate in that. But I think the discussion needs to be, needs to be happening on our, on a regular basis because the, the divide between the military and the civilian world continues to grow despite the efforts of many organizations that work tirelessly to, to bring people together. I think they do on an individual basis and they do that really, really well. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's still a discussion that's not being had at a level above and beyond the individual, um, and, and the family. And that's at the societal level and at the, at the national level and throughout the community Yeah. beyond, well, you know, we need to support our veterans. Okay. Well, what, what does that mean? People really don't know what that means. They think it, you know, most people just think it means give them the money they need, give them the support if they ask for it and then, and then that's as far as it goes. And, um, I think it, it needs to go beyond that. And then briefly, uh, just some of the other efforts. Um, it's kind of like a three pronged, uh, approach to the whole thing. One being, we want to create an environment where people can come and have discussions, um, in complete anonymity if they choose. Um, but in, at the very least in a place where they won't be judged. Um, and that's to talk about their, their traumatic issues too. Um, the second part, it would be to act as a relay between all of the organizations that already exist to help veterans and other people who've been through a lot of trauma. So we, we want to be able to be a conduit between, um, those people who feel like they may not have anyone to talk to and, um, and the people that actually are professionals at this and should be helping people as much as they can. Yeah. Because in my own life, I have tons of experience of guys who, um, have dealt with a lot of serious issues and they, for some reason, they, they can't make the connection between, um, the help that's out there and that, and the help that they need. Mm-hmm. And then the third prong is really just, uh, for my own edification and curiosity. Um, I, I want to do my own research on, on this very topic and, you know, 
I hesitate to use the word killology because that might already be trademarked and there's an organization, Grossman set up an organization for that. But I, I do, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by the fact that, uh, people will be willing to put themselves in those situations. Um, and I want to know why, why they do it. And I want to, I want to put that together into some sort of like formal product, whatever that looks like in the future, maybe years and years down the road, but it's got to start somewhere. So mm-hmm. yeah, well, there's definitely lessons to be learned from that, that, uh, like I said, you know, that, uh, somebody given it, and I don't even recall who given the class, you know, it impacted me, you know, greatly, you know, when I find finally after you know, 13 years in the Marine Corps, found myself in a, you know, in a, a gunfight on a, on a dark road, um, in the middle of the desert. And that helped me. And I, uh, hopefully, you know, I'd like to think it helped, you know, the, the guys that, that worked for me, mm-hmm. you know, kind of sharing those things with them. But the one thing, and it, it ties in to one of the other soft fleet projects is, uh, you know, people, the ability to tell your story is, is a powerful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's, you know, one-on-one with, with somebody or, or written, um, and, you know, Worth Parker started this, uh, the offer, I guess the open offer to, to on, uh, the soft lead Facebook page to have folks, uh, you know, try to write their story and, and mm-hmm. get some help. So him, uh, him and myself will be, uh, you know, trying to help help folks do that, uh, you know, kind of clean things up. But for me, you know, setting down and, and for, you know, that essay death letter, you know, I wrote that probably initially four or five years ago and, you know, went back to it and worked on it. And, you know, just the process of, of thinking things, you know, how did this happen? What happened? You know, I remembered so much, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's just, you know, if you're on a floodgates at a point open, you know, and, and, you know, things start coming back to you, which I think is, is helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, so being able to, to share your story, whether it's, you know, you know, on a podcast, you know, orally with somebody or, or whether it's in writing, you know, whether you choose to actually share it, at least the, the act of, of setting down, having to, to think through it, yeah. um, I think is, is helpful for a lot of folks. Yeah. No, I think sharing the stories is really important. Um, you know, especially is uh, Jared. You know, you mentioned we've talked about before. Uh, not only within the military, uh, you know, I think uh, there's obvious benefit to helping you know new new people into the organization understand what might be coming before them. Um, but I think also just as uh, for society and like bridging that gap. Uh, you know, I my grandfather did not talk about World War Two very frequently um and he was a very like laid back easygoing man um but i remember very specifically him telling the story about being in france and that they had been there for a while and i think it was france and that there was a new guy on their in their platoon um and the first night they were staying in this like you know chateau like grand villa house and that this guy was, you know, it sounds like the shells are falling all around us and, you know, everything's exploded. Like, we, you know, we got to get out of this house. We're in huge danger. Um, you know, there's like tanks shooting at the house and everyone else, you know, having been so used to it, you know, you know, it's probably 20 miles away. Like, it just sounds like it, you know, relax. And everyone giving this guy such, you know, such crap about it. Um, and then waking up in the morning to find out that the second story of the house was totally missing. Um, and, you know, one, and just, you know, how, how funny was it that, you know, the, 
the second story of the house had been blown off and you know no one had been killed and we were wrong that it was 20 miles away <laughs> uh you know and I, I was probably seven or eight years old hearing this but i remember thinking you know just being like like, are you insane? Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, and and certainly he was telling me this story again. Uh, you know, like you mentioned before, with you know, thirty years of of uh, of time between mm-hmm. to kind of think about that experience, right? So, um, but I, I, it, it resonated deeply with me, um, and I think that it's it's critical to share those experiences in order to kind of, you know, to bridge that gap, uh, you know, again, it kind of maybe be a little bit cliche, but, uh, and that's not even talking really about a violent situation. Right. Um, but I think that it's, uh, you know, talking about violence, like you said, is very taboo. And I think that it's, it's, it's something that needs to be done more, more often. Um, hopefully this, this project, you know, can kick things off and and get that started. But you know, John, your your essay, Death Letter, as well, I think was was very well done in terms of finding a way to communicate it uh, in a sense that wasn't uh, re, you know remorseful, uh, but also wasn't like uh, you know bragging or mm-hmm. or you know like callous of like check out this cool thing that I've done. And I think that um, again reiterating a comment from the, the beginning so many of the people so many of people that i know um that are civilians that work with veterans or you know experienced veterans that talk about violence um their experiences are always like yeah like there's this guy that works in accounting that like is always making analogies to like you know stacking bodies or you know ghost you know slaying people like it's like man like it just comes off as weird, right? Like, why are we talking about this? Um, clearly, there's some some need to get that discussion out there, and creating a way for that to be done positively is is ultra important. So, yeah, I think it's definitely helpful for the for the veterans themselves, and I mean, I think it's important for you know the citizenry to you know get some idea of what the you know what they're continuing to support. You know, if we continue to support the war, what what they're you know, have a hand in sending young men and women out to do. Mm-hmm. Well, um, so Jared, where do you guys have a website up yet? So essentially it, uh, um, more or less, yeah, it is set up and it, it's, it's live. The, there's not a lot you can do with it. It's, uh, any station, this net.org. Um, so I'm trying to set up a, a nonprofit organization to be able to, That's uh, any station, this net. Yeah. So right. if you're familiar with, uh, military radio, uh, communication and brevity. Um, that's just a radio call that you would often make when you're first coming onto a radio net to see if anyone is listening. All right. And so obviously the, the implication behind that is, um, I think a lot of people are making that call all the time and, and they feel like nobody's listening. So, um, as to, to the title of the uh, podcast, it, it might have to change. Um, but another, um, a title that you know you may see in the future is dispatches from the front. Um, um, it kind of plays along the same lines as that. So, mm-hmm. uh, so th- yeah, but there is an email address at the website that you, you can go on the website and you can uh, just get, get in contact at the bottom of the page. There's a bunch of links to uh, different um, facilities that are for veterans to deal with the uh, PTSD and other issues. Um, hotlines you can call. Um, 
and things like that. Resources that that uh, of people who are out there who are just you know waiting for the the phone to ring basically. And then and if you want you know if you there's a, a spot to just write an email in there you can write an email and it'll get read and it'll get responded to. And uh, if all we can do is talk via email for the next couple the coming months, then until we can, you know, actually have a face-to-face and have a discussion, um, then that's what we'll do. And I think the end goal uh, of that, of the podcast project would be, uh, and it's actually, it's stated on the website is um, to be able to just record it down and make it a part of recorded history. Um, it, I'm hoping it turns into some form of formal documentation for these 18 plus years of war that's been going on that really no one's been keeping track of. Um, but really to be able to, re- to record it, get it, uh, on, onto something permanent and then to give that to, uh, the person, um, to do with whatever they want with it. If they wanted to publish it, they can publish it or they can just keep it with them and, um, share it with their family or, or whatever. But, um, I think that's, that's the direction we're moving in and it may turn into more directions in the future, but it's a good start. Yeah. I'm excited to see it evolve. And worth or worth, John. <laughs> um, I would I would like to find out where people can uh, you know contribute stories to you and worth in this effort that you were talking about, um, as well as you know where people can read the essay Death Letter uh, and any of the other writings that you've made. Okay, um, if you want to get a hold of uh, Worth and myself on the team room, just shoot a. Um, you know, shoot a message, um, just letting us know that you want to write something and we'll, you know, we'll get back with you and, and kind of help you figure it out. The goal being that we'll, uh, you know, take the time to kind of help you scope, a you know, 12 to 1500 word essay, not, uh, and the focus of this was really on the kind of the die living aspect of softly, you know, what is it that you do to, uh, live life to its fullest, um, and we'll just kind of see how that goes, you know, and kind of help you craft it, give you, you know, red pen things for you. Mm-hmm. Um, this is I'm, in the Softly team room on the yes, Facebook, yeah, Facebook group. Yeah, Facebook group, yeah. Okay. You just reach out to, to either Worth Parker, um, he's the primary, or uh, or myself. Just, you know, let us know that you're you're interested and we'll we'll contact you on offline. And then to, to read Death Letter, I have a website. There's not much on it, but uh, it is. There's a link to it there, and it's uh, jadaily, D-A-I-L-E-Y dot com. All right. And hopefully there'll be more, Great. more uh, things thereafter. And also recently published in Consequences Magazine. Consequence Magazine, Consequence yeah. ConsequenceMagazine.org is a uh, it's an international uh, literary journal that focuses primarily on which, uh, warfare. Which issue do you know was that published in? I think it's 11. It's the most recent, most recent issue. One. They, it only comes out once a year. So. All right. Ah, okay. Yeah. That makes it easier. <laughs> well, um, for anyone maybe listening to this a year from now. There you go. You'll yeah. have to look it up. So, well, thanks, guys, for joining us. Really appreciate yeah, thanks it. Thanks for hosting. Awesome thanks for having us. To do this, and hopefully we can do it again. Definitely. Yeah. Thanks.